0: And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void are prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is my interview with the editor for Doom, Joe Walker.
1: The outsiders ravage our land. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known.
0: So you're going tomorrow? Yes, I'm going tomorrow with the Advance Team. I'd like you to take me with you. Are you trying to give me court martialed Can I trust you with something? I've been having dreams about a A girl falling in battle. Felt like a vision.
1: Dreams make good stories, but everything important happens when we're awake. For the future of House Atreides, have to be ready. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. They're not human. They're brutal. What if I'm not, dead? You'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. Come on! My son. bloodline ends forever kill them all this is
0: an extermination they're picking my family off one by one only together can we stand a chance let's fight like demons All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me today. Um, no, time.
1: no problem at all.
0: Yeah, this has uh, been by far probably my one of my favorite films of the year. And you're also one of my favorite editors uh, working today uh, because I love uh, the really precise but bold style that you bring to these uh, very vast and complex stories whether it's working on something like 12 Years a Slave or, in this case, uh, with uh, Doom. And so I guess my first question here is, was there a mandate from anyone, powers that be, saying you got to keep this to a certain length? Because as an editor, I'm just curious to know if that was something that was ever top of mind.
1: Uh, it's so uh, really nice to talk to you again, Matt. First of yes, all, you yes, you as well. You know, it's, it's 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 lovely. Thank you. Um, and it's true, you know, June. The challenge is trying to kind of retain and and celebrate the intimate within e- the epic. Mm-hmm. That's that's the main task. And you know, for me, that's. I mean, D- Denny provides sometimes dailies mm-hmm. that are so strong, and. Not always in a, you know, often in a very cinematic way. Mm-hmm. You know, there'll be little images that um, speak to you volumes, but they aren't necessarily a whole scene. Uh, I mean, uh, just an example of it is all those images like the, you know, the hands in the water, the hand with the ring.
0: Yes. Um,
1: the hand clasping the ring. The, the, And my favourite of all, which is a shot where... Um, duke leto puts his hand on Je- lady jessica's neck just she's looking super vulnerable
0: yeah as, as they're getting ready to
1: leave Taladan. yeah and they're packing the boxes and uh, and the bull and she's saying goodbye to her her servants that you know her lifelong family servants and uh, many generations have lived on this um green verdant place and they're going to s- certain danger and there was just something so beautiful about that because it's so sensory. You know, we Mm -hmm. all kind of understand what that feels like to to do or to receive that gesture and how, you know, it speaks volumes for the amount of trust Mm -hmm. they have as a couple, which I I thought was just so touching. And you're always kind of going, well, yeah, but it's kind of low-hanging fruit in terms of, you know, does it drive the narrative forward? No, but does it get you inside the character's minds? Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, I kind of always feel like part of, the joy of editing Denny's material is take advantage of those kind of what I'd call brain stemmy moments, mm-hmm. you know, that appeal to everybody on a sort of very sensory non-verbal non-frontal brain way. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I'm not a neuroscientist, but you know, it, I just know when I get something like that, that it needs to be on the perfect pillow, you know, in terms of editing maybe by removing the frontal shots where you see her mm-hmm. eyes or ears maybe removing, you know, things and just put, giving it the perfect platform. But um, really, you know, the kind of joy of this film to me was it's like working with a well-rehearsed team. You know, it's mm-hmm. like a well-rehearsed band. I've worked with Theo for many years, the Theo Green the sound designer, Mark, it's Mark Mangini, our second film. Um, I've worked obviously with my VFX editor, Javier, for 10 years since 12 Years a Slave. And Hans I've worked with since 1988 was the yeah. first time we worked together. So it's kind of, you know, and together the big object, for my my kind of goal on this one more than anything was to kind of, you know, we talked about the intimate and trying to make it a very compelling interior story, mm-hmm. which meant attending to things like Paul's dreams, but also making the whole film super rhythmic. So long answer to a question about duration. (laughs) Nobody ever mentioned duration. It was like a given, you know, when you're reading a script then you can normally kind of get an idea of how long something's gonna be. So I suppose when I read the script, I felt like they were aiming for two hours, 10, something like that maybe, Mm -hmm. or maybe 20. I don't know. I don't know what the goal was honestly in terms of nobody ever told me. And that was, you know, In truth, that's because the people working on this film are very experienced with cutting, and they know, like I do, that actually length has got nothing to do with it. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can have a a short-type film that engages nobody, Mm -hmm. and you can have, you know, uh, you can take your time and be careful and make sure, like we tried to do, to make sure that you cared, and um, you cared about the characters as they were tested before they were tested. So, you know, we took our time to set up this world. I mean, you know, we wouldn't have to do it if we were making a film about Brooklyn in 2021. We wouldn't have to explain the world at all. But we had 25,000 years to catch up in expositional terms.
0: (laughs) Right, of course. Uh, One of the things that people talked about for years with this material is that it was unadaptable, unfilmable. It just wasn't possible to tell the story in a way that made coherent sense. And one of the things I have to commend, Denis, yourself, and everyone else who worked on this project, is that this is the most that Dune has ever made sense uh, to people in a you know theatrical uh, setting. And so I'll, I think a large reason for that is some of what you're talking about in terms of taking your time with the story. But also there are certain visual motifs that you revisit uh, and there's certain objects that are highlighted in extreme close-ups to emphasize their importance and there are moments that kind of the film repeats and comes back to in the editing to hammer home either a greater theme so can you talk a little bit about this adaptation process because as we all know editing is the final rewrite on a film where in the editing room you felt you maybe felt like I don't know if the audience is going to get this. We might have to put this in there, move this around to have this make more sense. Can you talk a little bit about that process?
1: It's interesting what you point to there. You know, the sort of small details sometimes mm-hmm. highlighted. I mean, I think, for example, there's a, you know, it's a tiniest detail of them all. Is there's, there's at one point there's a beetle that's crawling on the sand, and yes, in it, and it's a kind of um, it's seen in the first. Seven minutes of the film is part mm-hmm. of Paul's vision of Duncan's doom. And mm-hmm. then you cut much later to a moment in a, in a, in a sort of underground bunker where, where Duncan is sort of toying with this, um, the very same beetle.
0: And you're hoping that the audience draws that connection and goes, ah, we're at that moment now. Yeah. Yeah. And you know,
1: you feel like, an, you know, you can hear the, the Sardaukar guards outside, you know, mm-hmm. getting closer and closer. And, you know, the fremen are fighting outside this sort of steel door and uh, you feel like danger is coming. And it's all enhanced by setting it up, the framing of it, being that tiny little detail. So it's the telling. Yeah, it's the telling detail that helps. I mean, you know, I'm always looking for that. You're looking for pairs and you're looking for patterns as an editor. You know, with Steve McQueen, I think 12 Years a Slave has a lot of that. You know, he designed it that way. And many things that were sort of put into kind of, you know, where you refer to a young Solomon playing the violin at the beginning and he's the talk of the town, and then yeah. you see a sort of shabby version of, of Solomon playing in the back of a room in the middle in the middle of Louisiana, and it's it's horrendous. Oh The sort still. of drop-in status. And an arrival is true. Yeah. And and I think Denny thinks like that cinematically, but Yeah. I mean, it was a long, it was a long edit. It was, um, you know, it was about 20 months,
0: 20 months. Oh my gosh. That must wait. So does that mean that, um, between when the original theatrical release was supposed to happen and when it's being released now, did you guys go back in the editing room and take an opportunity to revisit it?
1: There was a very big thing that happened in the middle of it. Of course, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Which happened to us all. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, there was a long period where 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 we closed down and then, um, you know, we basically reappeared in a load of garden sheds and and uh, spare bedrooms and mother-in-law flats across <laughs> the world and uh, carried on like that, you know. But actually, I think that was, I, it's churlish to say when so many people have suffered the damage that the pandemics caused, obviously, yeah. far more important. But, you know, it was really great to be able to kind of lavish some time and... Um, you, you know, we we the rush, you know, to try and kind of complete a cut. We there's a lot of things that I'm grateful we had time to revisit. And you know, it's it was in my house. I mean, there's sometimes I would lie awake at night at two with some problem that isn't fixed yet. And you think, well, I'm not sleeping. I might as well just go downstairs and turn it on and and, and sort it out. And like 45 minutes later I go, okay, that's not bad. That's not bad. And then go back and you sleep well, you know it's kind of it was rather nice you know that it was it was uh an intimate process for me and you know we were all kind of working remotely and Denny was in Montreal for a long time and then eventually I think we kind of had enough of it because you know you have to kind of it's a bit like playing jazz you know you want something you you want to feed off each other's ideas live in a much more um free way than yeah. being you know through time zone separated and and restricted by you know um, the technology, but yeah, we had time. It was uh, it was uh, twenty months, I think, mean, all told.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean, like that is that is a very very long time to be uh, editing a film. Going back to Paul's dreams for a minute, um, one of the things that stands out to me a lot when I watch this film is not just that the dreams are some of them actually play out exactly as he envisions them. And then when the Reverend mother asks him, you know, do your dreams happen just as you always dreamed them? And he says, not exactly. Uh, You and Denny play around with that a little bit here as well, where Mm -hmm. the dreams are not uh, sometimes a hundred percent truthful. And so I was wondering if during the editing process, if there was ever a conversation of are, are we, confusing our audience? Are we misleading them? You know, is, was there ever a question of, you know, should we scrap this, lose this, you know, or should we emphasize this more? Like, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I do think that the reveal that Paul's dreams are almost uh, make him like an unreliable narrator of sorts at times um, is something that is a very, very fine line to uh, to walk.
1: Yes. I mean, it's, uh, you know, that was a big discussion. I think the visions was something that you know, at the end of the shoot, there was lots of material that was intended for them, but it was like, it was, then he always said it would be like documentary editing to to figure out what and where and when. And in fact, the, you know, the Gom Jabbar scene, which is the yep. first time we encounter those visions, that's a scene where Paul Atreides is tested and he puts his hand inside a box. And if he, it induces pain in his hand, extreme pain. And it's a test by this elderly Bene Gesserit reverend mother mm-hmm. Bar-Charlotte rampling to see whether he can control his animal impulses whether he's whether they can confer on him the power that he's accrued over thousands of years of breeding yeah so that's when you first see the visions inside his head the kind of ju- under duress these uh, this sensitivity this sort of sense of the future is it attacks him mm-hmm. and, and in fact you know that was that took a long time to figure out, but you know the ingredients are kind of this is where this well-oiled team that I talk about comes into place because I could, you know, it was originally shot without the visions. Yeah, it was originally cut that way for the longest time, and it was meant to be, you know, the tension between three people who just happen to be sitting down or standing. They're not moving. Right. It was a bit like you know Sicario. Denny's amazing. You know the scene on the bridge where, where mm-hmm. you've got you know the tension between parked vehicles yeah <laughs> and you know you can make an amazingly tense scene out of parked vehicles mm-hmm. and um so again we were doing that but then eventually we felt like it was too good an opportunity not to express that something was awoken this is straight from the book yeah that something is awoken inside him and and uh it's the Kwisatz Haderach. this rather there's a moment where he goes from being the victim of tremendous pain to being in some way, the victor, something awakens in his eyes. And, and Timothy, this is some of the earliest material they shot. I remember seeing that those dailies and that moment where his eyes widen and he's kind of, his chin goes up and Mm -hmm. Charlotte Rampling's character, the Reverend mother sees that there's something very strong inside It's a dark force. And, you know, she becomes the lesser, Her power, the power balance changes. That moment was just a moment to kind of push, to put in some of these images of things from the future. And and I think the idea really about the unreliable nature of his visions was, I mean, it's a new skill. Yeah. It's, a, it's something that he's barely aware of. And when he goes into a spice field as a character, it just turbocharges this ability Mm-hmm. that has been bred into him for thousands of years. He's, you know, long line of of, of uh, interbreeding to arrive at this sort of super being. And, um, and I felt like what was important was to sort of convey the idea that things have a symbolic truth, if not a actual follow the plot kind of truth. You know, I mean, there mm-hmm. would honestly be nothing boring if somebody just if it was a film where somebody predicted things and then they happened exactly <laughs> as you've already seen them. That's foreshadowing in a kind of rather boring way. This was kind of, I think it's really resonant that he meets a man in the desert, Jamis, who we've mm-hmm. sort of vaguely seen before part of the Fremen fighters, and that he appears at first to be, you know, he appears like a brother or a friend. He's yeah. going to take Paul into the desert. And then that, you know, his 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 friendship becomes something different later in the film. It becomes, you know, it's, uh, it's more of a portal or a doorway into a new state of identity. Yes. And it's a kind of symbolic death isn't death. It's, it's something else.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. That's, I mean, I feel like we're close to the, the book in a way, aren't we with that? I, I think so personally. Um, I, I, and, and that was actually like something that I was super curious about is, Obviously, we know part two has not been necessarily greenlit yet. Although, as of today, I'm I'm feeling pretty optimistic about it personally. But I'm curious to know that like, there's some material in here. That was there a discussion of we can reuse this some of these visions of the future for part two, or do you think that Denny is going to reshoot some of these visions that uh, kind of hint at uh, broader aspects of where the story is going?
1: I mean, there was there was no material that was shot for part two just yet. There's nothing that was you know, intended for part two that we didn't use or anything like that. Sure, sure. I mean, it wasn't like Lord Lord of the
0: Rings or anything like that. Uh, you know, it was. But there, but like the scene in the tent, for example, where he has the vision mm. of uh, a holy war being fought in like in his name. There's like some shots in there that are obviously, I think, uh, a premonition of sorts of where the story is going. And I, I guess that's what I was more it's all getting out So the beautiful, isn't it?
1: Was... You go, you go from Zendaya looking lovingly over her shoulder to. To a uh, um, holy war. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in one shot. I mean, it's kind of uh, it's yeah, it's quite an. I mean, Denny shot this amazing staff, You know, mm-hmm. with a, a, the blooded handle of the Chris knife. You know, yeah. Zendaya's hand holding it. It's kind of. I hope that we'll see some of this again in part two.
0: Okay. yeah, no, I mean, obviously that that would be that would be fantastic because I think the movie obviously leaves us wanting more intentionally. So in a way that has made um, I know every audience I've seen the film with so far, as soon as those credits hit, everyone is just like either going, oh, man, or they're like, oh, man, their minds are blown. It's. You know, <laughs> in two different types of reactions there, uh, but no one is necessarily. Uh,
1: I heard both actually in the cinema yeah, the other night. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, it's it's. I think you know the it's such a dense book. When I, re- I mean, Denny was you know he read the book when he was thirteen. I read it when you know when he told me, uh, June was coming up. I sort of had a hint. I had a notion. You know, he raised his eyebrow at one point when he was telling me about June. We were talking about science fiction masterpieces and. Is when we were working on Arrival, I think, and I, I kind of felt there was something cooking. <laughs> and then, you know, I but I read the book only, you know, when we were working on Blade Runner. I remember him saying, you know, if you if you think people are going to be worried about trampling on a cinematic, you know, much loved masterpiece, then imagine what it's going to be like with the Jude fans, you know, the fans of the book who who they and he, the way he put it was he, they're going to come with baseball bats. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in the middle of Blade Runner and going, okay, we're going to go even further into this uh, yeah. now. But I mean, you know, it's a very, it's a dense world. I mean, right. I think of, and it's only my opinion. It's not Denny's opinion, I'm sure, but it's my opinion that he's, it's there's something fractal about the way he he writes. And it's, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily a cinematic thing. You know, it's very, it's like a biblical thing, for example, that he has so many names. I mean, he's, Paul Atreides, he's One Deep, he's the Mardi, he's the right. chosen one, he's the One, he's the Kwisatz Haderach, he's Nissan yep. uh, al Gaiib. I mean, you know, it, so it goes on. And um, but that's you know that's the nature of the depth of Herbert's world, and yeah. to try and shoehorn that into a standard feature film length, I think is 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 like um, dangerous, yeah, very dangerous. And and just having the time to kind of really let things resonate things that aren't necessarily push the momentum of the story forward, you know, mm-hmm. in a longer structure, like a two and a half hour film, like we made. Yeah. You know, there's obviously a time when you're looking at things to, you know, that you can lose for time. And, mm-hmm. um, I'm really glad that we didn't, you know, push out all of these beautiful details that are, right. are you know, uh, for example, um, the scene with the palm trees and, and, the and the gardener who explains this concept of an old dream, you know, the planet's old dream of being verdant again. And, um, you know, if you didn't have that scene, you wouldn't sort of see one that Paul, you know, he he, it's adapt or survive. And at some point his interest in the planet and in the Fremen, it saves him. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that you, when you see the palm trees burning later, it's kind of... It, there's a little tragedy in that. Yeah. The, it's, it's really well set up. So, you know, uh, uh, it, was, it was always a question of a fine balance between moving momentum. But, you know, this is the irony. We talk about the length of films a lot these days. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the greatest paradox of editing is that shorter doesn't necessarily mean more engaging.
0: Mm -hmm. I agree you know
1: you can have a different cut of a movie and restore 15 minutes of material I'm not saying that happened here but Mm -hmm. you know it's possible to actually make something more engaging sometimes By I I would argue that um
0: streaming habits have made audiences more likely to embrace uh longer form storytelling now that pushes a three-hour running time now uh and which is like something that I I can't help but think about this. Lord of the Rings is super super famous for having extended editions that came out after theatrical editions. And it's super apparent to me and I think anybody who has read the book or maybe not even read the book, but it's very clear that there are moments in this movie that maybe feel that they could have been expanded or, you know, cut short just a little bit here or there for small fun scenes of character moments and things of that nature. And just want to know, is it a conversation that you've had in terms of maybe one day, not now, but like one day revisiting to throw in some material that was left on the cutting room floor back in to give fans of the book a richer, more uh, enveloping experience?
1: I've never, you know, I don't think I'm, I'm not a fan of that. I don't think
0: Denny is either. No, nah, that's what, from what I've heard. That's the case, but. The cut is the cut. and. Mm-hmm.
1: And and the success of it or, or failure of it is entirely dependent on those many decisions, you know, thousands of decisions he's made and right the way through into editing where ultimately, you know, you have to kind of sell some to buy others. And it's a tough decision always to kind of craft a film that way. And there's horrible casualties that, you know, make you cry. And especially at this level of filmmaking, the things that sometimes you're forced to kind of reject or eject from the from the film are, it breaks your heart. But mm-hmm. um, the truth is the film functions better without, and that's all that we care about, is that yeah. the film, as a total, functions. And sometimes I always feel like, you know, it's reductive. You know, if you sort of show the bits they cut out, it doesn't always, you know, it's, it's just making you ask why. And it's not always, you know, complementary to the kind of, process. It's just necessary. I mean, the, it, the only director's cut that we've ever talked about, and this is entirely a joke, um, <laughs> I should say, was on Sicario. Okay. Um, there was at one point we re we rewrote a line for one of the Mexicans who had been caught on the border. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment where Benito del Toro's character is interviewing people and we changed one of the lines from something to mm. in Chihuahua. Okay, <laughs> And we didn't have that line. And at the time it was just me and Javier, my, my wonderful now VFX editor, then my first assistant. And Javier very gamely recorded into his iPhone, um, him saying in Chihuahua. And he sort of did it in, you know, he's from his family's from, uh, originally from, uh, Argentina so he you know he, with some authenticity he gave he gave us a line reading and for the longest time it was in the cart and it was something that me and Denny just found enormously amusing every single time and for quite a long time for about a year it was my phone you know my uh whenever my message went ping it would go <laughs> in chihuahua and it just used to I don't know why it's just one of those silly in jokes and then come the dub. They'd recorded a proper actor doing it, and there was this moment where we would kind of looked at each other because that would have been the moment to say, "Can we stick with the the temporary one, which we love so much?" because I have to know, <laughs> you know I have to tell you, I would know where Denny was in the in any screening room. Mm-hmm. Any time we watched a film, I knew exactly where he was because we would both kind of emit a grunt <laughs> of laughter at that point. So the only director's cut we've ever talked about was was doing the In Chihuahua version of the soundtrack of of Sicario. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape.
0: Now Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon.
0: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> Well, I mean, to be completely fair to Denny and to the work that you guys do, I think the final cut that you guys release in theaters is fantastic. And I would never expect there to be a extended cut of Blade Runner, 12 Years a Slave, Sicario, things like that. However, this book being as dense as it is and with such a rabid fan base that have stuck around with it for decades on end, I'm just saying... I think that they would appreciate a little extra material from a fan standpoint, just throwing that out there someday.
1: You have to come, you have to come around and uh, cross my palm with silver. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I don't know. I, I feel like it would be, uh, I sort of understand the interest. I really do. I think I celebrate that. I think yeah. it's amazing, but really it's like, it's with, you know, it's the whole thing that we're after. That's the kind of
0: goal. Of course. Of course. And I want to, highlight one scene in particular uh, before we wrap things up here. And that is uh, my favorite scene in the movie. That's the spice harvester scene, Uh, because Mm. I feel that there are so many complex elements at play there from sound to score multiple perspectives. There's a race against time with the sandworm approaching. And I was wondering if you could take us into your mindset as an editor having to cut that scene because um, that scene for me is the one that every time I think about this movie now, I, my mind just immediately goes to that. Where it seems like every production element is just firing on all cylinders.
1: Uh, That's kind of you to say. I mean, I think it's very yeah. It's a standout scene, sort of set piece. Mm-hmm. You know, the process of getting there is kind of kind of arduous. Yeah, in a great way, it's always exciting. But it was like it's a lot of time spent on it. I was actually working on that two weeks before the shoot.
0: Oh as, wow! Um,
1: well, it starts so as storyboards, or... and then they'd made previs. But yeah. previous is a great guide, and often it's like come, they come up with ideas that sort of are retained all the way through. But um, they often don't reflect how much time things need to be. You know, they they can be a little robotic in their in their pacing, mm-hmm. and you know, especially with a scene like that, where you have dialogue as well. So you know, this is before the actors came on set. And they knew how they were planning to shoot it, but the the uh, my task was to sort of inject a, a kind of a more a deeper more accurate sense of timing. Mm-hmm. I mean, apart from anything else, planning depends on that. Um, you know, the aerial plates have to be built with how long does that whip pan take? How long do you hold on that? What backgrounds do you need at all times? Um, and and with that you build a convincing sense of the sense of the thing coming towards you. So we spent ages on that. Me and Denny before the shoot, and even during the shoot, he was coming in, poor love, at weekends to to finesse it. We would we junk some dialogue, for example, and we um, just manipulated the timing. I used to use um, a sort of artificial intelligence voice that you can get online called Sarah And I just just to play. Duke Leto's lines or Paul Atreides' lines—I typed them in, and so you know, God bless Denny. He was able to look at that and not be totally thrown. It was just <laughs> a placeholder. And then Theo Green, who was working with me on the sound in Budapest, while that was coming in, he was also developing sounds for you know, just there's you don't have an ornithopter sound on on a library. You have to kind of build these things. So he right. was just starting to develop sounds like that, the, and the worm, and then. That means you can hold a shot for longer, you know, because there's always this, always like holding a shot and not quite seeing the thing, <laughs> you know? It's yeah. like there's a tension to it. Like there's a couple of times in this film where you cut to a landscape and you wonder what you're looking for and then boom, the, the whole thing erupts and a giant sandworm surfaces, you know? it's And in the case of that scene, there's a lateral shot that goes across um, that tracks along a dune and you see a, a spot of vehicle above and then you hold on it for ages until the thing erupts. But to make that work in the cut and to tell everybody, hey, no, it really does need to be this long. Mm-hmm. Um, you need I need to start working with the sound team to get the sound developed. You know, right. that's so by using all those materials and then at some point, you know, for the screenings, um, when we were showing it to the studio, we had to kind of put intent music. Mm -hmm. me and Denny tried to work without that for as long as we can but at some point this amazing um, music editor we worked with many times Clint Bennett and Peter Miles um, helped him out to to build up the score and actually then Hans came along and Hans brings this whole other thing I mean we'd done a kind of fairly a very good but fairly typical score the action kind of drumming thing of Mm -hmm. all the beats which identifies we need a boom there we need a Boom, there. But Hans came along and just did something totally else. He did, (laughs) he scored it as a meeting with God.
0: Oh, yeah. I love that.
1: It was totally different. And so then you've got this really interesting interplay. Look, the big, my big message about cutting this film is trying to find a rhythm for all of this, the Mm storytelling, the music, the sound effects, the, the, the visuals, Greg Fraser's amazing work. Patrice's amazing work, Patrice Fermat All of these huge, amazing teams who are firing on such a high level, trying to find, get it to settle into a kind of very musical rhythm in the film. And that scene I think is like one where I hope we, we, we kind of carried it off because you also want to build tension into the fabric of it. Right. You're seeing, you're looking off into the distance and you can't quite see you know, there's a worm somewhere, you know, there's a worm, and then you start to see a plume, you know, it's a gradual creeping kind of thing. And, you know, uh, no, I loved, I love cutting that. It took, a, it took a while, a long while to get it right.
0: I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. You talked a lot here about condensing the book. You talked a lot about uh, working with other departments, giving this film a rhythm. When you walk away from Dune part one, with already such an accomplished uh, career, what would you say has been uh, the most rewarding aspect of working on such a ginormous project such as this?
1: I think just, you know, I I think getting to know the front of Denny's face was quite an achievement on this one. He sits to my right and has done for like more or less five years, (laughs) six years. So suddenly to discover that there's another side to his face was quite something when we were in the pandemic and and working uh, remotely. I, I, you know, that we have trust and, and you know, uh, I would follow him off the cliff. And sometimes ideas come from just having faith that even if you can't see the end result, that you, you know, you have to put a foot into the dark. And with Denny, we'd done that many times, many, many times, um, particularly on Arrival. Um, I felt like we, you know, we'd already done Sicario, which was kind of, you know, which Roger Deakins photography and the way it was planned and written, it was, it was like beveling, you know, he's a master craftsman. He's like master carpenter and you're assembling this sort of beautiful bejeweled thing. Right. Um, And that was a kind of the luxury of looking at, you know, fine trimming to get the rhythm right. And then working with Johan, lovely Johan Johansson. So that was the kind of joy of that one. But then arrival, we, you know, we've gone to, we you're trying to there was a challenge to try and make things apparently clear yeah clearer and um and things that um just need that twist to
0: make sense at the end
1: (laughs) yeah you need it to land and and we found in early screenings actually that it didn't land with some people and they make up their own reason Mm -hmm. for things being the way they are which is often not you know it's not what you're firing at them it's not what you want to send them so, you know, there was a lot of adjustment to make. And and with Dune, I feel like having had that background of four films where we've done this together, it, I just feel like I have faith and we all have faith. He, he can look at an early cut and I've got the most stupid things on screen that any other editor would probably get fired, you know, instantly. I'm in the hunter-seeker scene. I have the word hunter-seeker floating around slowly because it's my way of saying, look, this shot is really tense if you hold it. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of proof of concept. I didn't have the animation. It was the day after they shot it. So I'm kind of just using the word hunter-seeker moving it across really slowly, really creepily. Um, if I didn't have it, I wouldn't be able to say, we're going to hold the shot that long. It would look absurdly long, but actually you've seen the end result. It's as tense as hell.
0: Right, totally.
1: So, you know, we have faith both ways. He has,
0: he, he isn't thrown by seeing something as stupid as that. He's just going into the fire, ultimately. <laughs> I, it, one last question, uh, easy one, and then and then we can go because I don't want to take up too much more of your time here. Whose idea was it to have dreams or messages from the deep before even the studio logos?
1: Well, starting the film is probably the, you know, the most complicated and longest discussion. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a challenge for screenwriting, and it was a challenge in the edit, and and we there were many iterations and different things we tried. And at one stage, Denny wrote a, a verse for the Sardaukar, It was sort of born of a need to float the idea of the Sardaukar early in the film, because actually, it's not you know it's easier in a book, isn't it? In a yeah. film, you kind of have to identify something. If they just turned up in the middle of battle, you wouldn't necessarily. You know, it, we had to take care of that. And have a mm-hmm. sense of this something really nasty sounding and hostile right at the outset that you pick up later when you hear that voice later. So the idea of starting with Sadikar's voice was was Denny's, and he wrote this amazing verse. Which I, you know, I did. There was a longer version, mm-hmm. and then Hans. Funnily enough, you know, this is one of the things where who knows who does what on this <laughs> soundtrack. You know, I mean. Uh, um, uh, sometimes you know the sound team are making musical elements and um, sometimes Hans is making sound effects elements and in the case of Sardaukar he came up with that voice he he recorded he was doing so much work with voices female voices in particular but he came up with this amazing throat singing guy and who recorded this voice and i won't even imitate it it's, it's got an incredible characteristic mm-hmm. and they spent he drove his team nuts and editing the l out of this thing and creating all sorts of um, strange enhancements to the sound and it was just ended up like the shortest version of it mm-hmm. it felt it felt like oh i haven't seen that before the logo why not why don't we put it before the logos i can't I don't know, you know, whose ideas <laughs> some things are. They, you know, it, it's I, I, I always credit Denny with every idea, mm-hmm. because ultimately, if it wasn't his idea, then he provoked the situation in which it was created, mm-hmm. as a, as a response, as a kind of solution. So, in a kind of way, he fosters that incredible creative atmosphere. So, you know, and I also believe you don't really break up the record collection until you're getting divorced. You know what I mean? <laughs> so. I don't know where, I don't know where it come from. I'm going to credit everybody with that one. And uh, I don't know whose idea originally it was, but uh, it starts the film with a real jolt and a darkness that carries over. And it's very economical because we have so much to explain. And, you know, Spice, the Bene Gesserit, the Fremen culture, the planets, the houses, the empire. Um, and then the Sardaukar is like, you know, we managed to get that in as well without you even noticing it. Right.
0: <laughs> Are you all like in a group chat of some sort waiting for Warner Brothers to say part two is good and then you could all just like go off? Because I, I'm, I'm curious to know if your next project is part two, if it does indeed happen or are you working on something else? Because then it's like if part two does get announced, then you're working on something else. And we want to have you come back, obviously. So I'm just curious from a scheduling standpoint, what's next for you? I mean, I've got
1: a June 2 exit
0: clause, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, are we
1: standing by now? I mean, look, I've got a strong hunch that 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 the interest, level of interest and this level of excellence, honestly, I, yeah. I hope it's not too boastful to say, but this level of excellence if you can't monetize that then you know what are we talking about sure um it's 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 an expensive time consuming labor intensive labor of love to make the film so it's no small thing it's a huge commitment of resources and money yeah and uh, and at the moment our enemy isn't really distribution systems or um you know viability of streaming versus cinematic theatrical it's the pandemic the pandemic is yeah. is the enemy so it's kind of um i'm very hopeful incredibly hopeful i think we had a great opening weekend i was, think you did it too did, it did really well and that's surely got to be a good augur for for dune two.
0: Well, I've seen it five times, and I can't wait to see it 55 more times. So congratulations (laughs) very, very much on Dune Part 1. Joe, this has been uh, fantastic getting the time to chat with you, and I wish you all the best moving forward.
1: Thanks, Matt. It's nice to keep up our relationship, and uh, really great to
0: talk to you. Thanks for your interest. You as well. Have a nice rest of your day. Thank you. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to my interview with the editor for Dune, Joe Walker, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Dune is currently playing in theaters and on HBO Max, and it has also recently been announced that Dune part two has been officially greenlit. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time.